If you're the parents of multiple children, or you are grandparents that take care of your grandchildren, or even simply adults that hang around children long enough, for sure you will have experienced this event. The event where one child runs up to you and asks you to adjudicate a fight that has just happened. Usually they'll say something like, so-and-so has hit me. And I've heard all of the reasons from my own three children why one sibling would hit another. Usually it's in the vein of he or she won't share with me. He took something that was mine. And of course, that wonderful of answers, he hit me first. I thought I heard all of the excuses until I heard something I never heard before this week. One of my children came up to me and said that, one of uh, his siblings hit him. I called the offending child, and I asked the child, why did you hit your sibling? The offended, offending child said, Daddy, he asked me too many questions, so I hit him. I didn't know to laugh or to enact discipline. Can you imagine someone asking too many questions and then you hit them? Although I do remember there are times as a teacher of more than 13 years that there are some students over the years who I have figuratively wanted to hit because they simply ask annoying questions. Why do children tell parents when they have been on the receiving end of a hit? Why do parents have to hear out the cries of children who have been mistreated? Because children are looking for justice. In fact, this is not only limited to children. This is the cry of the world today. All we want is justice. And if you have been keeping, keeping abreast with the things that are happening in our country and around the world, you want to yell uh, into the TV screen. You want to yell at the newspaper you're reading. All I want is justice. There's often uh, in demonstrations around the world this often used protest chant. And I think you've heard it before. Someone in the demonstrating group would shout out, what do we want? The group gathers, who is gathered, shouts, justice. The leader says, when do we want it? The group shouts, now. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. That's the mantra that we've been chanting ever since we were children. And it is what we as adults chant even now. Perhaps not vocally, but we think it. What do we want? Justice. When do we want it? Now. That's why, that's why, why I think so many people love TV shows and movies that depict law enforcement that solves a crime vigilantes who take justice into their own hands shows like csi or cold case we watch those because at the end of the show we get what we want the satisfaction of justice let me ask you this if those shows that you love watching always ended unresolved at the end of each csi show they couldn't figure it out would you continue watching those shows of course not now, some of you say, okay, well, there, I, I can go with one or two episodes where there's no resolution. But if each episode did not have a resolution, the bad guy got away with it, 
They couldn't find the killer. You want to watch those shows because it does not feed into the satisfaction that you want. The justice is served. The wonderful thing as we continue our study in the book of Zechariah is that the God of justice tells us, return to me and you will find justice. Return to me and I will return to you. That's the theme verse of this book, Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3. Return to me and in my embrace you will find justice. As a side note, that's why I love Bible prophecy. I, I love the prophetic books like Zechariah. Because the overarching theme is that God wins at the end. The good do come out on top. And so we continue our study in the book of Zechariah this morning. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Zechariah chapter 6 as we exposit verses 1 to 8. Zechariah chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. As we continue our study in this book, the invitation of the Heavenly Father to be in intimate fellowship with us, He says, return to me, and I'm going to give you what you're looking for. I will give you justice. And so we, as his children, can tell the Heavenly Father just how unfair life has been. We can tell him about the people that asks us annoying questions. We can tell him about the people who has hurt us, who has been unfair. We can tell him all things, and he will listen, and he will do something about it. But you may be skeptical this morning. Pastor, I've asked God those things. He doesn't seem to respond. I want to see justice now. I like what U.S. Supreme Court Justice Horace Gray once informed the man. A man who had appeared before him in a lower court, but escaped conviction on a legal technicality. Justice Gray told this man, Sir, I know you are guilty, and you know it. And I wish you to remember that one day you will stand before a better and wiser judge and that there you will be dealt with according to justice and not according to law. What is God's justice all about? And what do we really want when we say we want justice? We're going to unpack that this morning as we study the eighth and final night vision of Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1. And I want you to take note as we go through this passage. I'm going to ask you three probing questions. Three questions. Verse 1. Then I turned and raised my eyes and looked. And behold, four chariots were coming from between two mountains. And the mountains were mountains of bronze. Chariots throughout the scriptures were instruments of judgment. Bronze, often in prophetic literature, is a color that carries and connotes the idea of divine judgment. Judgment is what is talked about here. Now, what are these two bronze mountains? Uh, there are many interpretations, but I believe these mountains symbolize the gateways into heaven from which judgment comes. Zechariah saw four chariots coming out from between two mountains, mountains of bronze. Mountains that signify judgment. 
this first verse reminds us that God's justice will come. It's coming. It will come. Sometimes we don't think it's going to come. But the very character of God tells us that justice will happen. The God of justice, a God who is pure and God who is holy, will make sure that justice will come. His very unchanging character tells us that he will never allow sin and evil to prevail. And so when we know the character of God, we can be assured that justice will come. But we often want immediate justice. We want to see our enemies punished. We want to see that those who have wronged us are pained. And we want it now. But my friends, God's timing is very different. How he adjudicates judgment is also very different. Look at verse 2 and 3. With the first chariot were red horses, and the second chariot black horses. With the third chariot white horses, and with the fourth chariot dappled horses. Strong steeds. These horses represent angels who facilitated the work of other angels represented by the chariots. There are many colors. Perhaps the colors of the horses symbolizes various aspects of God's judgment. In the case of the red horse, representing war and bloodshed. The black horse, representing famine and death. The white, victory and triumph. Victory of God over evil. The dappled horse, the spotted one, representing plague and disease. Very similar to the four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelations chapter 6. These horses of many colors tell us that God's justice is varied. God doesn't have one way to deal with people. God has many different ways to deal His justice. And from this vision, we see that God's justice is complete. Different horses of justice to deal with different situations. You know, oftentimes we want to tell God what to do. We want Him to do this. We wanted him to do certain things to people who have wronged us. And we get mad when God doesn't do it our way. It's been said that there's no poorer or lowlier or more despised person on earth than God. Why? Because everyone is telling God what to do. And I'm guilty of that. I want to tell the sovereign God what he needs to do but through this vision clearly we are reminded that he is god he is reminding the people and us that this is his justice and not ours it is his colored horses and he's many of them and they are not ours this begs the first question number one of your taking notes Do you prefer God's complete justice or do you prefer your justice for others? Do you want God's justice or do you prefer your justice? Because you can't have both. Are you going to be the avenger, the punisher, 
Will you be the one to exact judgment? Or will it be that of God's? Can't have both. Most of you, if I asked you that, would say, I prefer my judgment, my justice. But man's justice is inadequate. It never leads to satisfaction. Pandit Singh, an old man, a Sanskrit scholar, a pastor, was asked while preaching in the bazaar in a town in India how he could reconcile the death of Jesus Christ for men, something so unfair, the death of one who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf with the justice of God. How can God be just when he did something so unfair to his son? How can one man die for the sins of mankind? When all of us deserve death, that was the theological question posed to Pandit. And I love his response. He replied, our ideas of the justice of God or of justice at all are very crude and imperfect. For example, a man steals 20 rupees, the Indian currency, and he spends that which he has stolen. But they catch him punish him as a thief but the stolen money has already been used it cannot be restored to the man from whom it was stolen has justice been done justice is not done to him or to the one that was stolen from and the thief suffers for his crime this is the messiness of man's justice there's loss there is pain He also proposes another idea. He says, suppose a man was to kill three children. Horrible crime. Man's justice would say a life for a life. And since he killed three children, he should be hanged three times. Problem is when you hang him the first time, he's already dead. You can't hang him a second or third time. The children are not restored to life. Justice is not done to them. Their parents don't get back their children. The community doesn't have these young children to play with anymore. The man who was killed was put to death. And thus, man's justice is again resolved through loss and pain. How about in our context today? Men and women who have stolen from the nation, we catch them. But nothing is ever returned. You see, we all clamor for man's judgment and man's justice. But it doesn't satisfy. But God's justice is different. It always results in gain and joy. Lost souls are found. Losses are made good. Happiness takes the place of misery. And all because the Son of God gave himself as a willing sacrifice to save man and restore them to God. Man's judgment is unsatisfying. God's justice will deal with people as they need to be dealt with. And so if you clamor for justice, you and I have to decide if we want God's complete and total justice or do you want to be the one to deal it out? If you say you want to deal with it, Then ask yourself, do you know everything? Do you know all of the circumstances? 
of the situation in which you are exacting revenge. If we take man's justice into consideration, then we quickly realize it's not real true justice because everyone has biases and no one can be fully impartial. One of my favorite stories is a story told in the book Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. Most of you, I doubt, have ever read this big book. You've just watched the movie. It's all right. It's the culture of our day. It's a fascinating story. As I can say, the book is always better than the movie. But the protagonist is a man by the name of Jean Valjean. What does he do? He steals bread. He steals bread. He's a thief. And so there is a police man by the name of Javert. And Javert's life goal is to put Jean Valjean in prison because he's a thief. Once a thief, always a thief. But we as readers, we know that Jean Valjean stole the bread because he was hungry. And so our heart goes out to him. We cheer for him, even though he is a thief. Because we are given the perspective of the entire story. Javert is never able to come to terms because he is a man of law. And he looks through the lenses of only what has been done wrong, which is how often we look when it deals with others. Another in the story is a woman by the name of Fontaine. Who is Fontaine? Fontaine is a prostitute. She must be a horrible woman. But what we as readers know is that Fontaine goes into prostitution because she is kicked out of a job where the employees were jealous of her, wrongly accused her of things they did not know about. And because the general manager of where she worked believed them, kicked Fontaine out. And because Fontaine had to raise a child enters into this profession. I'm not saying prostitution is right. But often we're so quick to judge and say, how can they do something like that? They must be punished without understanding that we don't know everything. You have to have a choice. God's justice or man's justice? Since I don't know everything, I have to concede that I would rather have God's justice than that of my own. Verse 4 to 6. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my Lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are four spirits of heaven who go out from their stations before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them. The dappled are going towards the south country. Here in verses 4 to 6 is a picture of the four angels, the four chariots 
that have been in the presence of the Lord of all the earth, and now they're going to execute His will. The Lord sends them, the plural black horses up north, the direction where most of Israel's enemies come from as they descend upon the promised land. And then the chariots with the white horses go in that direction, evidently following the previous horses north. The one that were spotted or dappled headed south and south of Israel, they Egypt, Israel's historic enemy. Presumably the red horses went in the same direction. And this is the picture here. The picture is of something that is unseen to the people. And God wants Zechariah to bring this vision to the people to tell them, you may not think that God is moving, but God has sent His horses of justice to the north and to the south to avenge the people He loves. And yet it is unseen. My friends, the total picture of God's justice is often unseen by us. Just because we do not see it does not mean He does not act. Did you get that? Just because we do not see God's justice does not mean He does not act. And so I pose to you the second question, number two. Do you really trust God's justice? Do you really trust God's justice? Because how we answer that question truthfully will challenge the way we live our lives. It will change the way we live our lives. We don't simply pay lip service. Yes, I trust that God will avenge for me. But we really don't believe it. I ask you the question truthfully. Do you trust that God will enact His justice in accordance with His will? Then if that is the case, then you've got to take your hands off. And here is the implication. If you say, I trust in God's justice, then you cannot complain with what He does. Did you get that? If you say, I trust in God's justice, you cannot complain with what He does to the person who has wronged you. That's the very nature of trust. God, my hands are off. It's tough. It's tough. God says, okay, if you trust me, I will execute my justice in my time. You may not get justice now. Are you okay with that? Are you? When someone has wronged you, are you okay that God has not executed his justice yet? Because his invitation is to us to return. Return to me. Watch me work. Just like when your children complain to you, and I'm sure this has happened, what do they want? When they tell you that someone has hit them, a fellow sibling, what they want you to do is they want you to immediately call the offending sibling to come. And in front of the one that was hit, that you spank them. Right? 
But if you're good parents, you know you won't do that. You don't want to embarrass the offending child. You want to have a, a moment to, to teach them. So you assure the child that was hit, don't worry, mommy and daddy will take care of the situation. But then what does the child say? But daddy, you will forget. All right? But you're going to forget. You're going to forgive them. And I bet you won't spank them. I want you to do it where I can see it. That's all what we want. But we assure them, don't worry. We will handle it. That's the same way God works with us. God says, you won't, you won't see it. You may not see it. Leave it with me. Just return. You don't need to be standing there when I exact my punishment. It is unseen, and you are not aware of it, but I've already sent my horses to the north and to the south. If you answer the question in the affirmative, do I trust in God's justice, then you have to let go. And that should affect the way you live your life. I'll be honest with you, this is one of the hardest lessons I've had to learn. I'm still learning. It doesn't mean I tolerate evil or unfairness in this world, but I'm learning the lesson of accepting how God adjudicates His justice. This is the part of trusting in God's justice where no longer am I to get so worked up to try to seek revenge, to take matters into my own hands. So it changes me. It's freeing. I can become carefree. I don't have to lose sleep getting angry that he or she has wronged me or he or she doesn't like me. Well, if they don't like me, well then, I won't like them. Laying awake all night, angry, in a bad mood, because the person who has wronged you has not been dealt with yet. And it's a tough prayer, but this is the prayer that I have prayed. God, I trust in your justice You do as you please. That last phrase is hard to say. God, I trust in your justice, and would you kill them tomorrow? That would help a lot. May they drop dead now. I will sleep well tonight. God doesn't need our advice. God, I place my trust in you. In your justice, do as you please. I will be content. It's a tough prayer, but that's the implication of that question. Remember how many plagues there were to finally convince Pharaoh to allow the Israelites to leave Egypt? You should know it. Ten. Ten plagues. Ever wonder why ten? Makes for great movies. Frogs, lice, boils. Why, why ten? 
I've often asked myself that question. Why 10? Number 10 could have been number one and the Israelites could have left a lot earlier. I believe there were 10 because the first nine were to give the people of Egypt a chance to repent. That's what the Bible says. But instead of repenting, what does the Bible say? Their hearts were hardened. They blasphemed God who brought about these plagues. And so God finally sent number 10, the angel of death. It is the same in Revelation. There are 21 recorded judgments, seals, trumpets, bowls. He could have just used one and wiped out the earth. But he uses 21, and when you read through the book of Revelation, it is because of his grace and mercy to call the people to repentance. And yet we also read in the book of the Revelation, what? When these judgments came, the people blasphemed the name of God. And so each gets progressively worse. You see, God's justice is intertwined with his grace and mercy. Do you trust in his justice? Let me ask you this. Do you want God to deal with you like you want him to deal with others? Do you want God to deal with you like you want him to deal with others? Because we ask God to deal with others immediately, severely, and then we want him to deal with us gracefully. Let me tell you what. If God dealt with all of us like we want him to deal with others, none of us would be here. I would be dead. But praise God that in his justice, he is also merciful and he's gracious. Unless you know everything and see all things, then you and I do not make good adjudicators. I believe it was F.B. Myers who once said, when he sees a brother or sister in sin, there are two things we do not know. When you see someone sinning, we do not know two things. First, we do not know how hard he or she tried not to sin. We don't know the struggles, the years of addiction that they've gone through. We only see the sin. We don't know how hard they tried not to sin. The second thing we don't know is that we do not know the power of the forces that assailed him or her that caused him to sin. We don't know if there's a gun pointed to his or her head. We don't know the family pressures. We don't know the circumstances. I think of World War II. I think sometimes how I would deal with trying to hide a Jew from the Nazis. I think it would be very easy. But then again, in that moment, knowing that I could also lose my life and the life of my family, I don't think that decision would be that easy. We don't know the forces at play. So I said, unless mankind knows everything and sees all things, then we don't make good adjudicators. And so the only thing we can do 
is trust the one who sees everything, who knows all. Do you trust God and His justice? Because if you do, then hands off. You can't complain how He deals with other people. Life-changing. Verse 7. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go, that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, go, walk to and fro throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. These horses are sent out of heaven between the two bronze mountains, and they are eager to patrol the earth. They're anxious to carry out their role of justice. And God gives them the permission to patrol it, and so they did. Notice how many times the phrase to and fro in the English Bible is repeated in verse 7. Three times in this short verse. What's the implication here? Sometimes we think that God, when He sweeps the earth to find all the injustice, He may miss something. So the Bible says these horses sweep again and they sweep again. It's a continual patrol. The implication is that God sees everything. God is emphasizing the assurance that God will deal with every little thing. All will be made known. Even things that we don't think anyone else knows will be found out. And the angels of justice are going to and fro to see that judgment is enacted that God allows. Some people think they will get away with it now. But the assurance is that eventually it will all come out. And my friends, that gives me hope. Not that I'm perfect. I look at my own life and I realize there are things in my life that I need to course correct because God sees it. But it gives me great hope that God's justice will not allow anyone to get away with anything. His horses go to and fro, the Bible says. And so you know what? He sees every older brother who hits his little brother first. He sees the player that made the first foul, but the refs called the foul on the second player who retaliated. Because in sports, we always know they never call the first guy. They always call the guy who retaliates. He sees... All the people who instigated the fight because of the words or the actions they took. He sees it all. He sees all the people who started it. Verse 8. Then he called to me and spoke to me, saying, See, those who go towards the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. The Lord says to Zechariah, come here. These horses that have gone to the north have appeased my wrath in that land. This probably represents judgment on Babylon specifically, but it has the implication of total destruction of the enemies of his children. 
and there is rest to my spirit. I am satisfied. I took care of all the injustice and I am satisfied. And now there is rest. What you see from verse 8 is that God's justice is final. There is no supreme court higher than God's that can overturn his ruling. How wonderful is that? To rest assured in his final judgment. There is not an appeals process. There are not levels of courts. There's only one supreme court. God is the judge. And what he decides, because he sees all, is final. Here on earth, we have our lower courts, and then your courts of appeal, and then your supreme court, and then your international criminal court. And if you don't agree with any of those courts, and you take matters in your own hand and try to pay off the judge, nothing's ever certain. That's what we call justice in our world, in any country. But God says, there is no higher court. My spirit is at rest. Because what I have adjudicated is final. I like the story of a Sunday school teacher. Had a little boy named Tommy who was eight years old in her class. And one day the teacher asked Tommy, Tommy, if you had a big apple and a little apple, which one would you give to your brother? Tommy thought for a moment and asked the teacher another question. Teacher, do you mean my big brother or my little brother? Tommy was a wise child. He knew that if he gave the little apple to his big brother, then his big brother could force him to give him the big apple. Override his decision. God cannot ever be overridden. His justice is final. That's how we are, you know. That's how we adjudicate judgment. If there's someone more powerful than us, someone stronger than us, we show them a lot of grace. It's okay. But if there's someone that we can pick on and take advantage of, we want justice now. Why? Because we know we can. It's not very fair, is it? With this in mind, we ask ourselves the third question, number three. Question number three. When it comes to justice, are you more afraid of God's justice or man's justice? Question number three. Are you more afraid of God's justice or man's justice? Who are you more afraid of? God or man? The way we live our lives, we're more afraid of man. Although lip service says, God, we fear you. But we don't. But we better. Because the Bible says his justice is final. There is no higher court. Who do you fear? God's justice or man's justice? You know, the question, do you fear God, is a, is a great question. We don't ask it often enough in our generation today because we don't take God seriously. We diminish what he can do. We diminish who he is. Do you fear God? 
in C.S. Lewis's The Chronicles of Narnia, and the first book being The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do you remember how C.S. Lewis represents Jesus Christ? Lewis depicts Jesus as a lion. And if you read the stories, you know that his name is Aslan. And the children feel so comfortable with Aslan, they ride on his back, they stroke him, they pet him, they have conversations with him. Aslan is very gentle. But Lewis says that when Aslan roars, his roar is so ferocious that people and animals drop in fear. These two characteristics of Aslan, paradoxes you can call it, prompts one of the children to ask, is Aslan safe? Is he safe? And the answer is no. He is not safe, but he is good. It's a good picture of how we need to picture God. God is a God of warmth and grace and love. But God is a God of justice and wrath. God is not safe because we are to fear him in respect but he is good. He is loving. And as someone has said, sometimes I think we need to hear him roar to remind us of his holiness. Who do you fear? Are you more afraid of God's justice or man's? These three probing questions I ask you because how you answer these questions will define in your life justice. Men and women who answer that they prefer man's justice for all of their lives will be never satisfied. They will be fighting till the day they die for fairness, for equality. And they will never find it. Because in this sinful world, life is unfair. But if you can answer these three questions, recognizing and affirming the justice of God, then you will sleep well at night. You will be satisfied amidst life's unfairness. You will be able to have joy. So do you prefer God's justice or your justice for others? Number one, remembering that God's justice is complete. Number two, do you remember to really trust God's justice? Remembering that God's justice will change the way you live your life. You can't complain with how he enacts justice on others. And third, are you more afraid of God's justice or man's justice. Remember that God's justice is final. There is no higher court. These three questions change the rallying cry I proposed at the beginning of this sermon. What did I say? The world is crying out. What do we want? 
justice? When do we want it now? What do we want justice? When do we want it now? Those three questions should change our rally cry to this. What do we want? God's justice. When do we want it? Let Him decide. I know it doesn't sound great. Sounds kind of awkward, doesn't it? What do we want? God's justice. When do we want it? Let Him decide. It's not catchy. Sounds awkward. But it's the truth. May that be the rally cry of each one who humbles themselves and acknowledges acknowledges a sovereign God. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It is a reminder even to me that justice belongs to you. And how you carry it out is your business. And how you deal with it is up to you. Help me to realize and us to realize that just because we don't see justice being done in our minds, that we believe it is not being done. Because you are at work. Your very character of holiness demands it. Thank you that you were patient in our lives. That the greatest injustice through your son, Jesus Christ, the man who knew no sin, to become sin on our behalf, to die for what I deserve, illustrates the type of justice you show forth in each of our lives. Change the way we live. Give us a joy and a peace and a comfort every day, every night, knowing that it's in your hands. You will take care of it. And so, Lord, this morning we run to your loving embrace, tell you all the people that have anointed us, all the people that have wronged us, all the people who have been unfair. We lay them before you, the God of justice. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.